want to walk through your not-so-detailed note packet tonight. A lot of space for you to take notes because I didn't know what to put on there um, because each person's probably going to take notes significantly different and could look at this differently. Um, the other thing I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to read extensively um, because I think that others put this much better than I would. Um, and they, there is some precise language at times, and other times there are stories that I could essentially try to memorize for you and present to you. But I'd be memorizing from their work, so rather than memorizing from their work, I'm just going to rely upon their work. Um, so I'm indebted to a variety of sources today. Your textbook uh, that's been recommended, Historical Theology for the Church, I'm using this theology for the church from Dr. Aiken that he's the editor on, and I'm using some notes from Capitol Hill Baptist Church um, as well throughout the evening as we work through the roots of the Reformation as it relates to salvation. Last week, I think you looked at the Reformation era and Scripture and authority, but largely Scripture. Give me the non-technical uh, summary or a observation from last week, those of you that were here, about Scripture and the doctrine of Scripture or the understanding of Scripture in the Reformation era. Give me anything from last week. They went from a tradition model to a... Go back to the scriptural, where it's the only authority. The other one, there was authority for the Bible, but they also had additional authorities. Okay. Papal degrees. Okay, so there became debate over and extensive discussion. The Protestant tradition emphasized not authority from church tradition and history or people, uh, but from the scriptures alone. Okay. Anybody else? on concepts from last week. See, I wasn't here last week, so you guys could have you could have thrown a lot at me and I would have gone with it. Yeah, yeah. Pastor Jacob, he talked about, you know, of course he did. Um, I was working on some of the stuff for our translation project last week. Um all right, any, do you remember any key figures, any key people from last week? Is that who you were going with? Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Good. <laughs> Anybody else? There was Calvin. Okay. Did you guys talk about Calvin last week? Okay, we'll talk a little bit about him tonight as well. Zwingli. Zwingli. That was the third one. Okay. I did not remember the name. Did you do Erasmus? Okay, not a significant church leader, but very influential in his understanding of scripture and translation. Okay. Zwingli. Yep. Ulrich yep. Zwingli. Good. Did you uh, did you talk about uh, what Luther had to eat? What he regularly ate? The diet. His diet was steady worms. So, all right. Um, so, just a, a bad pun there. Yes, looks like uh, worms is called worms, and it was not what he actually ate. 
But every time I see it, I'm immature enough that I must smile about him eating worms. So um, Luther and the diet of worms. So that noted, I want us to jump in, but first let's pray. God, thank you for the wonders of salvation. God, give us humility, give us clarity, and give us uh, a great heart for you in light of the salvation that you have brought. And would we see that being extended to others? It's your name we pray. Amen. All right, I, as I said, I'm going to read a good bit, summarize a lot of stuff, and you're free to take notes however you find valuable. There are no fill-in-the-blanks today, although I often do that. Um, and some of the stuff you may find doesn't always just go with key people, but by and large, our outline for tonight is we're going to talk about key people. Then we're going to talk about some intersection between Protestantism and Catholicism, Catholicism um, on the doctrine of salvation, and then we're going to shift into... Uh, some of the kind, concepts of, of Calvinism and Arminianism, and I'm going to give you an article to kind of look through some of that. We're not going to solve all that. Um, it is not going to be extensively detailed, but I want to spend some time on the people first. So, uh, reading a little bit of story for, for you on some of these people that are instrumental in their concepts of Scripture, as you covered last week, but Scripture and salvation. Because by and large, when we think about the Reformation era, it is, begins with Scripture um, and the study of Scripture in the original languages and the languages of translations also and going to the Scripture. Instead of the church and one person having the Bible, people begin to get a hold of the Bible and the Bible gets a hold of them. And they begin to see, hey, things aren't always like we were taught. Now we're studying the scripture, more people are studying the scripture and getting access to the scripture, and as they do so, they're having high regard for scripture, and with that comes this big issue of salvation and the sacraments and how does it all relate together. One of those key figures was John Wycliffe, often called the grandfather of the Reformation. Um, he entered... Balliol College, Oxford, at about age 16 in 1346. The Black Plague swept Europe in 1347, wiped out a third of the English population. And one of the things that we miss in our blitz through history is the way in which people's culture and their society and what happens in their life impacts the way in which they see things. It doesn't mean that those things weren't there, but they're more prone to see things. He was greatly impacted by the Black Plague and seeing so many sick, fall sick and die. It influenced his view of ministry. He wrote against the abuses of the papacy. He argued that the Pope had no authority over the English government or the church. And at the center of this was his reading of Scripture. He would, would say it is impossible for any part of Holy Scripture to be wrong. In Holy Scripture is all the truth. So... He initiated the work of translating the Bible into English. Okay, with John Wycliffe, Wycliffe, whichever one you want to go with. He began working from the Latin Vulgate, not the Hebrew or the Greek. He completed his work a few years later. He got some help um, and that wanted to see the Bible come into the language of his people. Wycliffe, having translated the Bible into English and studying the scriptures, he began to see that justification or salvation through justification, salvation and justification was by faith Alone. Okay, so you have Scripture alone, and you have faith alone, and the grace of Christ alone. 
studying the scriptures, Wycliffe began to see justification was by faith alone. He wrote, trust wholly in Christ. Rely altogether on his sufferings. Beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. That the merit of Christ is able by itself to redeem all mankind from hell. And that this sufficiency is to be understood without any other cause concurring. So he moves over before Calvin and Zwingli and Luther to talking about salvation through faith alone. Those other guys are more famous for it. I'm sure he wasn't the first one. Wycliffe wasn't the first one. But he contrasted this with the teachings of Rome. He contrasted this uh, with the way that Rome taught that salvation uh, was through Christ and maintained through the sacraments and people's efforts. And we'll look a little bit more at that later for their big sins. Like Christ's grace at salvation really covers our big sin, like our, our past sin and our little sins of the future. But the big sins that happen after we trust Christ, well, we got to do something else about them. But that's by and large the teaching. Some of that was the selling of indulgences, purgatory, all sorts of other manner of solutions were being proposed um, throughout time by Rome and the Catholic Church. But um, going to sneeze. Come on. All right, it passed. It'll be back in a few minutes. All right, so that was Wycliffe. In addition to him, next guy comes along shortly after him, John Huss. He was a preacher at Bethlehem Chapel in Prague, or Prague, rector there. 1409 was when he was rector. He was born in 1372. In 1411, at 39 years old or so, he attacked the usage of indulgences. He argued that indulgences were useless because God himself freely forgave all who truly repent of their sins. Indulgences did not need to be sold because God freely forgave. Indulgences did not need to be doing anything Because God himself, not the Pope, not the Catholic Church forgives sins, but God himself forgives sins. They are against God. God forgives. You don't need to sell it because God freely gives it. And God is the one who does that. So he began to write against that. He argued that the church was the entire body of the elect from all ages known to God, whom God had predestined, some language there we'll look at in a few minutes, to be his on the basis of God's free grace. The church had one head, that is Christ, not the Pope. He pointed out the numerous errors of the Pope and challenged papal authority. He argued that preaching, not the Eucharist or the what we would think of as the Lord's Supper, Preaching, not the Eucharist, was the central act of ordained ministry. Preaching, the gospel explaining scriptures, central act of ministry, not a sacrament of communion. How do you think this went for him? Great with God, not so great with... Yeah, as you can suspect, it did not go very well for him. Reading the story written by others. He attacked such a foundational belief of Rome and obviously gained many enemies. 
even those sympathetic to the cause of reform alienated themselves from Huss because of his views. These matters came to a head when the Council of Constance was called in 1414. He was invited to defend his views. Aware of the possibility of being condemned as a heretic, he went after being granted safe passage by the Roman emperor. However, the council ignored the emperor's promise and threw him in prison upon his arrival. Though he would be brought before the council in 1415, he was never given a chance to defend his views. Instead, he was mocked, bullied, and stripped of his vestments. When the council committed his soul to the devil, he countered, and I commit myself to my most gracious Lord Jesus. He was later handed over to the emperor, who had vainly promised safe passage, and the emperor's soldiers burned him at the stake on July 6th, 1415. Refusing last-minute pardon if he would abandon his beliefs, he said, I shall die with joy today in the faith of the gospel which I have preached. And his martyrdom sparked, and others sparked an uproar, tensions flared. And as we exit Middle Age, enter into more traditional 1500 timeline of the Reformation, there's this background and seeds beginning to come forward, but it is not without cost to their lives, to their careers, to them in society as people advance ideas that are outside the normal standing of the Catholic Church. And along comes Luther, okay? Uh, Luther, born in 1483. He was the son of a wealthy miner, um, but, but a common man. His father had hoped he would leave rural labor, become a lawyer, as a student at age 21, he found himself in a lightning storm. He cried out, St. Anne, help me, I'll become a monk. And he lived. Therefore, he held up his word and he became a monk to his father's whore. He became, in his own words, a monk's monk. Everything you read about Luther talks about his serious devotion to the Lord, his efforts to prove himself, his writings. Um, looking through Luther, you could easily say that Luther was deeply, deeply troubled, uh, may have had some mental illness, uh, as with the terms that we would even use today. Uh, and yet God used him greatly, was gracious with him and he was despairing so much so of himself. He devoted himself constantly to the most rigorous forms of prayer, fasting and work. He said, if I ever a monk got to heaven by his own monkery, it was I. And I, I read monkery, and I think monkey-ery. Um, so if ever it got, monk got there because of his monkery, it was I. If I'd kept on any longer, I would have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. He tried to find peace with God, but could find no assurance through the Roman penitential system of confession, penance, and good works. I tortured myself with prayer, with fasting, and freezing cold. The cold alone could have killed me. I agree. Um, so I think that's why God has us here in Northern Virginia to to humble us through cold. Um, so, but it's much better today. All right, he says, it caused me pain, such as I will never inflict on myself again, even if I could. Luther once said, if I could believe that God was not angry at me, I would stand on my head for joy. If I could believe that God was not angry at me, I would stand on my head with joy. It's spiritual terror, at God's transcendent holiness, his own sinfulness, his religious dread came to a head when he was to say his first mass as a priest. Um, he thought that this was going to help. He stood there. He later recounted, addressing God, I was utterly stupefied, terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty? 
seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of an even an earthly prince, who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? I'm dust and ashes full of sin, and I'm speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. Took up his study of theology, um, began, earned his doctorate, began teaching theology through the scriptures. At that point, teaching through theology meant teaching the scriptures. He lectured initially on the Psalms. Um, and then in April 1515, 1516, he began to teach through Romans. Um, and we, we looked at some of his work and talked about him on Romans later. Um, by now, Erasmus' Greek New Testament and published. He poured through it with the help of the New Testament and Romans. He understood the gospel. And Luther saying this, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistles to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but one expression, the justice of God. The justice of God, because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to that dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it was inexpressibly sweet in greater love. And this passage of Paul began to me, became to me a gate to heaven. So as He writes there, troubled, knowing himself a sinner, knowing God holy, knowing that God must punish sin, finally coming to the realization that in Christ, by faith, God gives us justly his righteousness, taking on our punishment. This comes to a head in 1517, Luther and salvation over the selling of indulgences. Remember earlier we mentioned like bad sins and big, and little sins, big sins like murder, adultery. If they were unconfessed and unrepented, they left the sinner eternally damned, condemned before God for all eternity. But then there were lesser sins. And, and the Catholic doctrine at that time taught that lesser sins must be purified here on earth after the death or in purgatory. Here on earth before death or after death in purgatory. All right. That could happen through indulgences. And through indulgences, the faithful can obtain the remission of temporal punishment resulting from sin for themselves and for souls in purgatory, which is something that Luther took great, uh, a great problem with, particularly as he began to understand that justification comes through Christ's work and it is at faith alone, not the purchasing of indulgences. And we are declared righteous by God, not declared halfway righteous by God. Okay?
Luther's big passage, uh, noted, we noted this a while back, probably two years ago now, that Romans 1.17 is kind of his key uh, verse in it. The gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith from Romans 1.17. He had previously understood, so I want to recap this in somebody else's words. He had previously understood the righteousness of God to be the standard by which God judges sinners. But Luther came to see God's righteousness as a gift God gives to sinners. God justifies the believing sinner by robing him with his own divine righteousness. Justification is not a status a person merits with God's help through great effort. It is a free gift God bestows on whoever will receive it by faith. This liberated him from the burden of the church's penitential system, introduced him to the gracious God he had always been so desperately seeking. And I wonder if he stood on his head. Because out of joy, he should have. He would then accuse later the Roman church of being guilty of the worst of sins, the church that was supposed to bring people to God, but instead the church's teachings and practices had the opposite effect of setting up insurmountable barriers to heaven. He wrote a lot, he said a lot, but he didn't like set it out in a systematic understanding of doctrine or a organized system, right? He just taught a lot, just didn't always organize it. And here's exactly the thoughts of Luther on these matters. Didn't do that. That was left for somebody else. We'll get to them in a minute. Next guy up. John Calvin. I don't know how much you guys dealt with it last week on Calvin. Um, it is popular today for people to think of John Calvin in one of two ways, either heroically as the greatest thing ever, maybe since Jesus, um, or as this bad guy. In reality, there's a lot of things named and that come under Calvin's name that Calvin probably did not think or do. Um, And that to some that think Calvin has a bad name, give him his bad name. Um, And there are, are other things that he did do well. So Calvin was born in 1509 in northeast France. He had a well-to-do father. He was sent to Paris to study for priesthood. He had a change of mind. Um, He was excommunicated at one point. He began to study law. He came into conflict with the reformers. Um, And then later, about the age of 20, 24, he was converted. Um, He began then to pursue the Lord, understanding those things. Um, He attributes to God as Calvin will regularly do, not the work of others, but God, the great act in his soul and the great act of God's grace. Shortly after conversion, within about a decade, he was forced to flee persecution in France. He arrived in Switzerland where other reformers were there. He composed the first edition of the Institutes, which is essentially systematic teaching. Okay, whereas Luther did not systematically organize things, and often we find that the first, the first guy to really be in charge and noted for doing something doesn't, isn't always the one that like puts it into a nice, neat filing system. Um, 
Calvin puts it in a fairly nice, neat filing system over multiple editions and amendments and expansion of the institutes. And as he expanded and wrote more and more, he's going to write more and more, and we'll talk about it later tonight briefly on predestination, election, those types of things. Uh, But that was not the only thing he had to say, despite that being the only thing that often gets talked about him today. Um, He worked, he went to it in and out of a variety of locations. He ended up back in Geneva. He did a lot of preaching. He preached twice on Sundays, three times during the week, uh, and at one point he preached daily. Um, So he did a lot of preaching. Um, He wasn't just a scholar. He was a true pastor preaching well. His final edition of the Institute uh, was completed a few years before his death. Uh, he also has commentaries on a large number of the books of the Bible. I've got those. They're, they're pretty good. Um, and it's at times fun to, to read him and his comments on the papacy into text. And it's like, oh, I see what situation you were in. I would have never thought about that. But in your situation, it makes sense. So kind of fun there. Um, he was buried in a plain coffin in an unmarked grave. Uh, no massive place. People were not walking around calling themselves Calvinists. Um, so, um, but today, some do. Okay. I'm going to go to a couple of things that he did in his conversion and his thoughts, okay? His understanding of salvation. Uh, by the way, and this is argued by somebody else, that really Calvin's greatest contribution to our understanding of salvation is not what he is most famous for, which is the debate on predestination, Instead, um, Calvin was the first to clearly distinguish between the aspect of salvation we call justification and the aspect of salvation we call sanctification. Okay, so in one sense, it is faithful to say that we have, if you are a Christian, you, I, if I am a Christian, I have been saved justification. In another sense, it is faithful to say, as a Christian, I am being saved. And we mean that with the term sanctification. And in another sense, it is still faithful to say, as a Christian, I will be saved, the doctrine of glorification. And we see all of that in Romans chapter 8. I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. And Calvin makes a key contribution distinguishing by the salvation that we have received in Christ at the moment of justification and the salvation we are receiving in an ongoing way, sanctification, which is the process of God making us practically day-to-day what we are positionally righteous before God. In really simple terms, salvation, sanctification is God helping me act as a saved person. Calvin's really the first one to distinguish between those. It's not known for that now, but I think it's helpful. It's one of the things that uh, in the history and the discussion on salvation, sanctification, some of the problems that we're running into. Remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, I taught you about people coming in and seeing that there were problems. Pelagius had a problem with people that weren't being acting like Christians. They didn't have this concept of, hey, 
you have been saved, but yet you're still a work in progress until the day of glorification when God makes things well and right in you. So without that formal system of thinking, they were coming up with all sorts of other solutions to what the scriptures would say and why people were still struggling with sin because they looked around and saw people struggling with sin and either they were going to say they're not a Christian or this isn't sin or what's going on with this. So he contributes to that. Okay. He separated justification from sanctification, showing that simultaneously we are saved, justification, and we are being saved, sanctification. Okay. So there is that on him. In addition, uh, a couple of other notes on him before his thought. Okay. He did affirm that believers were sovereignly dispatched on this journey at the Lord's behest. His views on predestination and election developed over time and were deeply contextual given his ministry at Geneva. Scriptural texts such as Romans 9 through 11 and Ephesians 1 embodied the biblical nature of this doctrine. The Jacob and Esau narrative from Genesis rejected any notion of divine foreknowledge as the basis for election. Such examples led Calvin to characterize predestination in his final 1559 edition of the Institutes as an awful decree. That God would condemn some like Esau to damnation was awful. Yet this judgment was tempered by the awe-inspiring grace of God seen in Jacob's predestination to salvation. The doctrine of election appears practical and pastoral, though, for Calvin. His experiences... Throughout his life are informative. In the 1536 edition, he only commented briefly on election. By 1539, it covered four chapters and it grows in scope until the last edition. Why the change? In context where the gospel saturated the whole of society, because where he was, the gospel began to be proclaimed, preached, taught. He was preaching every day of the week, explaining the scriptures. He was perplexed by the successes and the failures of the evangelical message among the people. Given that Geneva was awash with preaching services, access to the gospel didn't necessarily bear the fruit of regeneration for all. The doctrine of election was a practical explanation for the success and failings evangelistically of the gospel in a thoroughly Christian context for him. So he looked at it, this really simple version. He looked and he said, I've been preaching to these people a long time. Some of them do not act like Christians ever. Why? Well, it must be that they're not Christians. But if they're not Christians and they've heard the gospel, why not? Because it seems like such a no-brainer. Like, God takes my sin. I give him control of my life, and he's rightfully over me anyways. Jesus takes my eternal punishment. I get eternal bliss. That's a no-brainer. Why are people so not getting this? And why are some others so getting this? And he wrestles with Scripture in that particular context begins to articulate more and more the concept of predestination as it relates to election. Context plays a role in the articulation 
of theology does not play a role in what is true, but it plays a role in our understanding of what we're prone to see and what we're prone to talk a lot about. All right, let's jump over to Catholicism for a minute. Okay, so a couple of years later, the Council of Trent. Council of Trent is a gathering, but not a greatly representative gathering like some of the bigger councils before. It was not widely, or it was not broadly attended, was not, did not have good representation. 70% of the people there were uh, from Italy. It was not intended to be an objective jury. Uh, it hardly consisted of an unbiased body. And in fact, there, there's some thought that they may not be even super familiar with the people that they were um, and the writings of the people that they were actually opposing. So um, they dealt with Scripture by and large. Y'all may have talked about that last week, but I want to talk and mainly focus on Catholicism and justification and salvation. This is something I did not know until studying today. Don't ever recall this in my uh, church history stuff before. They turned to the doctrine of original sin and justification. They spent a lot, seven months, working out the articles, the decrees on this. The goal was to find a middle ground between Pelagianism and semi-Pelagian teaching that was widespread and what they considered the excesses of the reform teaching on justification. They feared would lead to antinomianism or just the breaking of law outside of God's demands and people would become unrestrained. What shall we do? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? And Paul had that. Paul got accused of that. Uh, may it never be. Okay? But they were afraid of being accused of what Paul was accused of. And it's important to note that not all the Catholic, Catholic theologians uh, were convinced that Lutherans were altogether wrong on original sin and justification. Okay, no support for Trent's articles unanimous. Several voted against the article on original sin and justification. What I found interesting is if you read the decrees, some would say, hey, this makes, sounds a whole lot like a Protestant council. Let me read you some of this. Okay? This is officially out of the Council of Trent. We are said to receive justification as a free gift because nothing precedes justification. Neither faith nor works would merit the grace of justification. For if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, as Paul says in Romans eleven six, grace would no longer be grace. That sounds very in harmony with what we would say here. Okay? Another chapter. The wicked are justified by God, by his grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. At the same time, acknowledging they are sinners, they turn from fear of divine justice, which profitably strikes them to thoughts of God's mercy. They rise to hope with confidence that God will be favorable to them for Christ's sake, and they begin to love him as the fount of all justness. They are hereby turned against sin by a feeling of hatred and detestation, namely by that repentance which must occur before baptism. Ooh, man, that even sounds like a Baptist. Repent before baptism, okay? But there's another shoe to kind of drop. One of the things that they seemingly were against is the concept of assurance and that the uh, reformers were assured 
to some degree of their salvation. But they also thought that the reformers largely had faith in faith, not faith in Christ. There seems to be a misunderstanding there. They spoke against the, the salvation of faith in faith. Okay? So let me give you a really practical example. I've said this numerous times. Sincerity is not a test of truthfulness. It is possible to be sincerely right. It is possible to be sincerely wrong. Your sincerity does not determine whether something is right or wrong. Although our culture would tell us otherwise. Just because you want something to be true, firmly believe it to be true, does not make it true. So, also, having faith in faith does not save. A serious amount of faith in faith doesn't save. We are not saved by the strength of our faith. We are saved by the Savior in whom we place our faith. It is him that saves, not the strength of our faith, but the one who is faithful on our behalf that saves. And there, one of the things that they wrote against is faith in faith, which we would actually agree with. But they seem to at times have, my understanding, think through that the reformers just had a lot of faith in faith. And they noted that light and everyday sins are not good, okay? But the grace of a justification once received is lost, not only by apostasy, by which faith itself is lost, but also other, any other mortal sin. At which point, the confessions, absolution, and penance come into play to restore you to the state of grace that you had after your baptism. Okay? It's good enough Baptism, your faith is good enough for most things, but not everything. And then there's this sacramental scheme and all this other stuff um, that undermines Christian assurance, makes your righteousness flow, ebb and flow with your sanctification. So on a good day after you've been to church, you're more sanctified and you're okay with God. But other days, ooh, that was a bad day. Not a good day. You're not okay with God. Which, by the way, is a question that when I was a youth pastor, I often got some version of a question related to this. And essentially the question was rooted or or phrased such as like, well, if I do, what if I forget to tell God that I've sinned in some practical way? Like, because we should continue to confess our ongoing things against God that are ongoing and wrong before God. We should confess those. But what if I forget? Am I still okay with God? To which I would give this example. Imagine for a moment that you are um, in a car and you get stuck on a train track. And you look over and the train is about to hit you, barreling down 80 miles an hour. And the last thing that goes through your head is a really bad word. And you say it even. You don't even just think it, you just say a bad word. 
at that point when you get to heaven, does God look at you and say, ooh, sorry, last action, bad action, you're done. At that point, does God look at you and say, well, you know, the most of the rest of your life was good. You trusted in Jesus, but that last day of your life, the very last thing you did after you left church, singing praises to me was get hit by a train, but right before that, you said a bad word. Are we in trouble with God then? No, our standing before God is on the basis of what Christ has done on our behalf eternally, not on the basis of whether or not the last thing that went through your head or out of your mouth before you died was sinful. Our standing is in Christ's righteousness, not on our own. But we still at times can struggle and wrestle with that even within the evangelical Protestant tradition to understand the goodness of that and the completeness of that. All right. I am going to speed up and I'm going to summarize a lot in a little time and not resolve something that some of you probably wanted me to resolve that I wasn't capable of resolving anyways. All right. Calvin warned about, quote, excessive curiosity when considering predestination. The failure of his future followers to heed that advice set a divisive trajectory for Protestantism that still casts a long shadow over of controversy today. Okay? Calvin warned against excessive curiosity when thinking about predestination. His handpicked successor, by and large we owe him for this, Theodore Beza. So, many that think of themselves and describe Calvinism. If you think of Calvinism as a bad thing, you actually probably mean Bezaism, not actually Calvinism. Um, Beza went a lot further and he articulated this in a, a pretty ambitious way. Um, and reacting against that was a guy um, named Jacob Arminius, who is known from which the, the group, the Arminian tradition, will take its uh, stances. Uh, Arminia, the, the wedding of Beza had this deterministic so, salvation, theological arrogance. It was explosive. Arminius dared to raise rebutting questions. Uh, the revision of Calvin's theology was important to what became known Beza's theology sparked a movement known as Reformed Orthodoxy, which, according to the book, overstressed God's sole decree for salvation at the expense of biblical texts that Arminianists and others believed highlighted also human responsibility. It also led, in many cases, to people not treating Matthew 28 as a command for believers um, to obey and take the gospel to all nations. Okay? In many cases, the early, some of the early Reformers and others throughout time Reformed orthodoxy narrows their salvation position so much so that it is like the only legitimate position in the eyes of some. Okay? Uh, Arminius came along. He uh, helped. He articulated some things at the Synod of Dort in the early 17th century. That, that there's an irony, or not, he didn't. He, he pushed back, and then the Calvinists come along at the Synod of Dort, articulate some things in rebuttal to those, his points. So what the book argues is actually ironic. 
is that the, the five points of Calvinism often used by a TULIP acronym is that they did that, the Calvinists there at Dort, that they did that on a reaction to Arminius points, not necessarily just starting with the Bible. Um, that they were like, hey, this is where you argue with us. So now we're going to argue back with you rather than just starting with Scripture, um, which is what they normally did. So um, uh, book says the TULIP acronym finds its historical expression in relation to the taproot of Arminian theology. Um, and they crystallized the Calvinist theology that was distinct from Calvin while branding itself in a direct relation to a reformer who demanded he be buried in an unmarked grave to dissuade theological veneration. Bury me in an unmarked grave so that nobody follows me. We are now Calvinists. Okay? It's amazing how much people can mess things up all throughout the pages of Scripture. This is not just history. Like People in the Bible and today mess things up very, very significantly. Okay. Um, I'm going to move ahead quickly for you. The roots of the discussion on Calvinism, Arminianism, uh, the five points of the, of the tulip, all of those things uh, are markers that Baptists have often discussed and debated. Okay? In early English Reformed circles, there were particular Baptists that defined themselves, and they were called particular because of their view on the particular nature of Christ's atonement, that Christ died for the sins of those who would trust in him. Then there were the general Baptists in England, the general Baptists believed that Christ died for all and yet only applies, God only applies salvation to those who trust in Christ. So in the 1600s in England, there are general Baptists and particular Baptists. So if we wanted to use it in today's terminology, there's Calvinist Baptist, Calvinistic Baptist and non-Calvinistic Baptists in England 400 years ago, give or take. We're not going to solve tonight, even if I had spent the entire time, any debate on Calvinism, Arminianism, the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. We're not going to solve any of that. Um, that was a big discussion then. It has been a big discussion since then. What I have done is given you an article from a person that is a Calvinist, and it, I think it slants some of the stuff uh, a little bit more on the Armenian position than may be accurate. Um, the left column there in your homework section is the more Armenian position. The right column is the more Calvinist position. I, I'm okay with the articulation on behalf of the Calvinistic side on the right-hand side. I, I think there's I'm not sure how true to the, at least the original camp of Arminianism the left side is, or if that's more a responding a little bit to some of the abuses in the shallow theology there, okay? Um, there, there are five different sectors. Um, the probably the most debated one um, at the scholarly level and at the Baptist level is probably unlimited atonement and limited atonement. 
And to be honest with you, there's days that I switch in and out of both of those camps. There's days that I don't know which one of those two I'm in. It's all in how you want to define the terms, by the way. Um, So I I will go on the record in the last two minutes of noting that um, I do not refer to myself as a Calvinist. I do not think of myself as a Calvinist. There are a lot of times that I think things, and I think the Bible teaches things that appear very in line with Calvinism. Um, the seminary president where I was at though, he said, if the first thing that you see when you see in the initials JC, as you think of John Calvin, we have a problem because we ought to be thinking of Jesus Christ. Um, but I also will say that like uh, that bad version of a Calvinist that doesn't proclaim the gospel and tell other people about Jesus, I really haven't ran into them. I haven't found one. I found some historically, certainly seen some historically, um, William Carey's day, uh, he had to be the father of the missions movement by pushing back against uh, that type of interpretation of Matthew 28 that did not lead to the proclamation of the gospel. So um, I'm okay. I can, I can work, tend to work better with Calvinists than those that would describe themselves as Arminianists because I, I do struggle with the concept of losing salvation. Uh, that one's the hardest point for me to, uh, art, uh, to understand from the Armenian viewpoint, is the concept of losing salvation. Um, the hardest one for me to get in full agreement with on your listed page there on the Calvinistic perspective is the limited atonement, although dependent upon the terms and day, I can be there. Um, I, so I am not, I would not describe myself as midline. I do lean, like if, you know, we got like five points over here, like how far along are you, pastor? Like I'm, not in the Calvinist camp, but I'm not really far from it. And most of the people that I respect that really handle scripture well tend to be Calvinists. Um, And, uh, but, and I'll tell you like publicly, uh, Jacob and Sam would say they probably would describe themselves. They would not choose the label for themselves of Calvinists, but they would be willing to go in that camp. I don't like going in that camp. I resist it pretty firmly. Um, I'm sympathetic, but I wouldn't put myself there. Um, I would fight it. They would not fight it, but they would not maybe would not choose it. Um, I think Ron is a little bit more Arminian than I am in his theology. So if at any point you want to talk with any of us on any of these issues, that's the perspective that we land in. Ron is not a full-blown Arminian that denies all five points of Calvinism, embraces all five points of Arminius. Um, he's not there uh, by any means. He is still pretty far along in the sympathy towards the Calvinistic perspective on some things. Um, And Baptist churches have all different viewpoints on this one. The big one, like I said, that I can't get past is the losing of salvation. I just don't see how you can really get to there from Scripture. Um, So you've got a summary of it. Um, And you guys have heard me preach enough. If I'm in a text that sounds uh, very Calvinistic, I'm going to sound even more Calvinistic than normal. If I'm in a text that sounds and emphasizes a lot on human responsibility and salvation or that does not uh, lend itself towards as more uh, lends itself more towards an Arminian viewpoint there's times that if you only hear one sermon you may think hey he might be an Arminian okay um, I would resist that label more than I would the Calvinist one but um, there's some ways that I can see sympathetic sympathies on both camps and the reality is again I think it's really helpful and valuable when I was first here like somebody came up to me in my first year here, and I think really meaning well, 
he just looked at me. He said, you're not really one. You're not one of those Calvinists, are you? I said, what do you mean by that? And he labeled, said a whole bunch of things. He was like, you know, people that don't share the gospel, that believe so much in God's sovereignty that they, like, don't ever do anything, that, don't, that deny man's responsibility. I was like, oh, I'm not one of those guys. <laughs> Clearly not one of those guys. But for him, he, and he really didn't know all of what it meant. He just thought it was a bad word. Okay? Calvinism is not a bad word. It's actually a really helpful word, but that can be taken to extremes. Arminius is in, on his own, not a bad guy. Trying to wrestle with scripture. Doing so pretty well a lot of times. But it's possible to take it in excess and beyond that, where it should be. So, um, quick questions for me tonight. No, I didn't allow opportunity for interaction in my storytelling and reading. Not as a listener, my favorite. So I apologize for lecturing that way. Okay. Um, that really helpful chart there at the end on your article can help. If you, if you really care, ultimately, like having a system of ways in which you think through theology and God's sovereignty and the way that God saves is helpful. But here's my big caution. And here's why I would not describe myself as a Calvinist or an Arminianist. When I work through the Bible, I do my best to always understand first what the Bible says, secondly, how it fits. And when we become system thinkers, it is dangerous that we begin first to think of how things fit into our system and second, what it actually says. So I think we need to be biblical theologians who study the scripture first and then put it into a system. And the danger of studying a system early in your theological studies is that you will begin to see the Bible through your system rather than form your system from the Bible. Now, it is helpful to have a system. I have a system at this point. We all have a system. We just don't know how organized it is. We have a series of things that we think and the way we think they fit together. And we always need to allow the Bible to correct that. But I am never worried about violating one of the supposed five points of Calvinism that Calvin did not articulate himself. I'm never worried about articulating one of the points that Arminius did. I'm always worried about understanding what the Bible says. And there are ways in which we want to form that and understand that. And that in, the, in God, there are no contradictions. But in my brain, there are some things about God that appear contradictory. But there are no contradictions. For example, let's go back to the incarnation of Christ. How is Christ 100% God and 100% man? I don't know. I do know he is. Can that math? No, the math is not mathing. Okay. Is it true? Yes. All right, so is the contradiction in God or is the contradiction in my brain? The contradiction is in my brain. Once we develop a heavy 
trust in a system of theology, we can run the risk of fitting things into our system at the expense of what the scriptures teach. But also, it's really helpful to have a system. So systems are good. Just don't let your systems govern the biblical text. Um, So if you want to read up on the Calvinistic system and the Arminius system of understanding salvation and the way it was articulated in the Reformation era, there are all sorts of articles. This Chalice, uh, Tim Chalice articles have a lot of stuff that you can use. It's good. Um, And we're way past time, so I'm going to say see you next week.